You are listening to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast, a podcast covering all things Civil War. Please subscribe by going to our website, www.capitaldistrictcivilwar.org. Welcome to the Capital District Civil War Roundtable Podcast. I'm Nick Tony, your host. We're recording from the Grant Cottage Civil War Weekend in Wilton, New York, uh, which is just north of Saratoga Springs. And our very special guest is Robert Connor, also uh, known as Bob. Uh, Bob is a former journalist, I believe. Uh, he's a tour guide at the Grant Cottage, and he's written two books. Uh, the first is a nonfiction biography of Union General Gordon Granger, named General Gordon Granger, the savior at Chickamauga and the man behind Juneteenth. And his newest book is a novel of uh, historical fiction about Ulysses Grant's final days in New York City and here uh, in upstate New York called The Last Circle of Ulysses Grant. Bob, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Nick. A pleasure to be here. We'll talk about Grant. Obviously, we're here uh, at Grant Cottage Civil War Weekend, which has been a great event. If you hear any uh, <laughs> any shots, uh, uh, fire or artillery fire while we're doing it, the, the battle is just wrapping up. Uh, there's also music being played just across the way. Um, but before we talk about Grant, let's talk about Gordon Granger. Sure. Um, he was a career military guy. Um, but before we get into his, his service, he served in the Mexican-American War. He served in the Civil War. Um, talk about uh, where is he from and what was his childhood like? Uh, Granger is from western New York. He's the son of farmers, as a lot of people were in the right. early 19th century. Uh, western New York it was sort of almost not far removed from the frontier. In the War of 1812, it had been kind of fought over territory, uh, even though you don't really think of upstate New York as the frontier that late, but in a way it was. Uh, I Now it's uh, orchard country. It's still pretty rural where he's from. It was the uh, schoolhouse is still there in Joy, New York, but it's really a, a hamlet that's virtually disappeared off the maps. Um, Granger himself... Uh, the only other job besides soldiering he ever had was as a teacher in a one-room schoolhouse nearby there, not in the actual Joy one, but in the in that rural part of the world, which is Wayne County between uh, Rochester and Syracuse. And so he, he has a rural upbringing. His mother dies when he's young, I think. Yes, and his he has father, a stepmother. Yeah, yeah. Father remarries, and there's, I think, 12 siblings from that marriage. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, brothers and sisters, yeah. yeah. Uh, after, uh, like you said, he, he taught for a couple of years. Then he goes to West Point. Um, what was his experience at West Point? Um, well, you know what? I, I should clearly, I should have uh, gone over the Granger book before the, the interview. <laughs> the Granger book came out five years ago. Uh, right. As I recall, you, you may have to remind me, having read it more recently, mm -hmm. that it, he was you know, kind of a middle-of-the-road yeah, student he was, like uh, Grant was, actually. But. Right, right. He, he and, and more, even more than that, he was, uh, I don't know if troublemaker is the right word, but he, he, he didn't take... Uh, to authority very well, which is something that sort of followed him his whole career. Yes, um, although just uh, West Point, as you probably know that a lot of your standing in the class is a question of discipline, not just academics. And although Grant was not similar to Granger in many ways, but he did 
not have a particularly stellar record as West Point, unlike Robert E. Lee, sure. as you probably know, first in his class. But that's mm -hmm. because Lee, unlike, I think, both Grant and Granger, is a very proper, spit and polish, you know, so Lee does everything right. And it didn't, uh, wasn't Stonewall Jackson also graduate very high in his yes. class? I think yes. he did, yep. yeah. Mm -hmm. So those are guys who are, who, who unlike, in their different ways, both Grant and Granger, Grant was, as you probably know, never wanted to be a military guy and was kind of sloppy in his dress and kind of blew off a lot of requirements. Whereas Granger was a kind of feistier, difficult to get along with person, both then and in his later army career, it was always kind of, and didn't, among other people he didn't get along with was Grant. Right. And, but so, yeah, I think they, neither of them were kind of very well disciplined in, in that way of army types. But. And, you make that point in your book, and, and of course, a big part of your book, while well, it's a biography on Granger, it's this relationship that he has with Grant, or lack there. I mean, they did not like each other. Grant certainly didn't like Granger, and he seemed to take every opportunity uh, through the war and after the war, and to to, to criticize and uh, remove Granger from whatever position uh, he was in. Well, that's true. Uh, the and I, in trying to be fair to both men, I, I think that Granger was difficult to get along with and was kind of a bit of a blowhard, whereas Grant was a very different type of person. But on the other hand, even though I kind of re revere Grant's memoir, I think it's a wonderful and a great book and honest as Grant saw it, but that doesn't mean it's holy writ and that and uh, in wading into kind of controversial areas there there's a recent book by I think a guy named Varney which takes a very negative view of Grant's memoirs much too negative in my view mm -hmm. but it is true in my view that Grant's memoirs are objectively unfair to certain people, including Granger, including George Thomas, including William Rosecrans, because, and I don't th mean to imply that Grant was being dishonest, but that Grant's view of the war and of his life was just different from those guys. But I think if you look at it objectively, I don't think Grant was fair, say, in talking about... I, Rosecrans or Thomas. Uh, he was fairer to Thomas, but I think Rosecrans and also Granger, and some of it, it's not just Grant, in the, because I was the first person to write a biography of Granger that nobody had kind of been the brief of the defense of Granger's life. And I found some things which the historical record was just wrong about Granger. And probably the, the main one that sticks in my head right now is a scene which is really accepted as gospel about the Battle of Chattanooga, which is on its face. I When I first read about it, I thought this sounds strange. And when I looked into it, it's just really complete nonsense. But the what was the historically accepted version of events until my book came along was that 
at the Battle of Missionary Ridge was delayed for about an hour because Granger was fiddling around with some artillery battery and did not bother to communicate the order to attack the Confederate Army, which is on its face a ridiculous notion. And I think I proved pretty conclusively what actually happened there, in, in part, not by some great new research on my part, but by going back to original sources. And the key one was the memoir of James H. Wilson, who was a brigadier general on Grant's staff at the time, and it, who really makes it clear what happened there is that Grant was deferring to Thomas, who was the commander of the Army of the Cumberland. Grant was the overall commander. And Grant was kind of giving Thomas these suggestions, or at least as Thomas took it as a suggestion, and Thomas did not think a frontal attack should be made right then. He was waiting basically for Hooker on the right, especially, and also to a lesser extent Sherman on the left to make more progress in their flank attacks on the Confederate position, the strong Confederate position on Missionary Ridge. But ultimately, Grant does order Thomas to attack, and Thomas orders Granger to attack, and Granger attacks. So there's no delay there. Right. But the standard historical sources say that, you know, because of his wacky Granger didn't attack, which is just stupid in my view. I mean, it, and it, it sounds arrogant on my part to say the whole of the historical record is stupid, but I think that. If you look at the facts, that's what it shows. Well, I mean, in, in an example of sort of, you could, two two different people could get two completely different impressions from Granger. And so you have a quote here from uh, General Sturgis, I believe, uh, the, the Battle of, of Wilson's Creek, yeah. which was his first major engage, engagement that Granger was involved in in the Civil War. And Sturgis sa says that, you know, Granger was essentially all over the battlefield, and he had a, uh, quote, his energy and industry seemed inexhaustible. So here's a general who was uh, uh, seen as very, very good in, in Sturgis's eyes. And you have Sheridan a little later in the war who maybe was witnessing a, a similar scene where Granger is sighting artillery and, uh, you know, sort of getting involved in very small matters. And Sheridan said that, uh, he had an uncontrollable propensity to interfere with and direct the minor matters relating to the command, the details for which those under him were alone responsible. So in my head, I sort of, it, you could picture how people could sort of see this differently. And I think it also goes to maybe, like you said, he wasn't the most likable of characters to some people. And he was reflected poorly in history because he wasn't. Well, there's some interesting things there. I mean, that Sheridan, for example, until quite late in the war, until the spring of 1864, was a subordinate of Granger's, in, including in key parts of Sheridan's career. When Sheridan was a captain in 1862, he succeeded Granger in command of the regiment that Granger was the colonel of, at Granger's recommendation, and as when Granger was promoted to general. And then Granger recommended in turn, along with several other Union commanders, including, I think, Rosecrans and Asboth and somebody else, that Sheridan be promoted to general, and Sheridan was on their recommendation. So Granger played twice in 1862 a key role in Sheridan's promotion. And then, but... 
Sheridan um, became a favorite of Grant's, mostly at Chattanooga. But in, again, in the historical record of what happened immediately following the victory at Missionary Ridge is really inaccurate. And the implication given by both Sheridan and Grant after that is that Granger, you know, mysteriously failed to vigorously pursue the Confederates, which again is nonsense. Sheridan, I mean, Granger was conferring with his direct commander, Thomas, who was conferring with Grant, and Thomas's orders to Granger and orders Thomas got from Grant were not to vigorously pursue the retreating army of Bragg, but Granger's division was immediately sent off, directed up to Knoxville, right. which <laughs> part of the reason for, for Grant's dislike of Granger is that, and it's true, that Granger vigorously argued with Grant in the subsequent days about that order because his troops were... They're not getting in, fed. They're, right. They were in bad shape. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They've been under siege. They were still not on full rations. They were ill-equipped. And that winter, as in fact Sheridan, who went with Granger, under Granger, to East Tennessee, was complained about the condition of those, and Granger was complaining to Grant all through that winter. And it wasn't really until Grant came himself out and saw the very poor conditions the Union troops were suffering under, continuing to suffer under that winter, that finally, you know, they got some better supplies in. And now you can argue that Granger should have gotten on better with Grant, and maybe the, his troops would have been better supplied. But it was a it was screw up from both of them, I think. And you know, the people who suffered under it were the soldiers. You people assume that it was only Confederate soldiers who were ill supplied at that stage in the war, but it wasn't. They, you know, the the Union Army in East Tennessee that winter was very poorly supplied. People were dying because mm -hmm. of it. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, whoever's fault it was, Grant's or Granger's or whoever, that they should have been better supplied. Now, so that's Chattanooga in the aftermath. Before Chattanooga, you have the Battle of Chickamauga, where, right. where it's the title of your book, and this is where I think you sort of try to... to, to uh, for a change, somebody speaking up for Granger and saying that he actually... Uh, did something that was very heroic and and and, and really a, a something that helped the Union Army stave off disaster. Um, he, can you sort of set the scene going into Chickamauga and then talk about Granger and what he did there? Well, I I think heroic I I don't is not a word that I want to use because he did his job at a time when I guess you might argue others were not. I mean, I I said earlier that I thought Grant was unfair to Rosecrans, and I do think that, but it is the case that on the second day of the Battle of Chickamauga was Rosecrans's worst day of the war. And, you know, much of the Union Army is running away from the battlefield, and Granger is the reserve division, and he is trying to figure out what's going on, basically. And he's he has orders 
but the orders have been kind of preempted by events that he's sending messengers to try and find Rosecrans to get new orders, and he doesn't. They can't find Rosecrans because the Union Army's collapsed, and right. Rosecrans is, is running back yeah. to Chattanooga. So, in the absence of clear orders, Rosecrans, I mean. Granger eventually marches to the sound of the guns, and it's that, I wouldn't call it heroic, I'd call it doing his job, but, you know, the job of any soldier marching towards battle, you could argue, is, I guess, in a way, is heroic, because, I don't know about you, but I've never been in warfare, or, and I always have to remind myself, in talking glibly about, you know, war is something, you know, Chickamauga is one of those horribly high casualty battles for the Civil War is full of, and as we know, the Civil War is the highest casualty war of any war for American soldiers up to this day. So anyway, so Granger marches, and if Granger had not marched to relieve Thomas, Thomas's defense probably would have collapsed. Certainly, Thomas, when he sees these troops when Thomas physically looks down from Snodgrass Hill and sees this body of men marching towards him, Thomas knows that depending on whether they're Confederates or Union depends whether he's going to survive or not. That If that was a Confederate reinforcement and Thomas genuinely doesn't know whether it is or isn't, then Thomas is not going to make it. He's going to have to precipitately retreat or possibly be forced into surrender or be, have his army smashed to pieces. He doesn't know, but he, it, they, are, they do turn out to be Union, and so Thomas is able to hold on in good order and able to retreat that evening. And with the assistance of Granger's, there's still some very hard fighting done mostly by Stedman's uh, brigade, I guess, uh, under, uh, under Granger. Uh, so... Uh, we talked about Chattanooga, and then he does eventually go to Knoxville with Burnside. And is he relieved at that point? No, he um, not yet. He he okay. goes with Sherman to relieve Burnside, and does so. Although <laughs> the sort of joke is that Burnside really isn't that hard pressed at all, and the, his troops are in better condition than definitely Granger's, but also than Sherman's. But anyway, so then Sherman goes back to uh, Chattanooga, and Granger is left um, with, he's not in command because whoever succeeded Burnside, I forget who that is, is that, um, there are a couple of people in quick succession, but anyway, Granger is stuck in East Tennessee facing Longstreet through that winter, but he's sort of dancing with Longstreet. There's no major engagements, but he... But Grant, Grant is putting pressure on him to go after Longstreet, isn't he? He is, yeah. And this is, I, I think this ultimately leads to Grant finally really wanting to get him out of there. Well, I think Grant had long since given up on Granger by then, and so by the spring um, they, they get rid of Granger, and, and really there's no... He, he does think he should be doing more against Longstreet, but mainly he just, when the spring campaign starts up and Sherman's going to move south against Atlanta, that Grant doesn't want Granger involved. But then Granger finds a way back into the war, unlike various other generals who've been relieved, through 
basically through his political connections yeah. with Andrew Johnson and through Can with Canby, who is, uh, for some reason, Canby has become this senior general who's in charge of the Mobile campaign and could use a, an experienced subordinate and takes Granger on. And so Granger becomes... In fact, because Canby is not personally involved, he becomes the senior un the commander of land forces in, in what's basically the naval campaign against Mobile Bay. But it's also as a significant land element that Granger is in command of capturing Confederate forts. Fort Morgan, I think, was the main one. Um, what's the other one? Anyway, there's three different Confederate forts in the vicinity of Mobile and, Bay. And Mo Mobile was one of the only remaining, uh, uh, the two two remaining ports that uh, Confederates could get supplies into. So it was a fairly significant. That yeah, they it were was able the main one on the on the Gulf Coast. The right. other one being Wilmington, Wilmington I guess. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And the the Farragut's naval victories um, and Granger's capture of the forts cut off Mobile fr from being an active blockade-running port. But the city of Mobile, to the north of the, of the uh, to the north of those forts, it still remains in Confederate hands. So the, the army campaign against Mobile continues through that winter. And in fact, there's an offshoot that Granger goes off to Pascagoula. Uh, there's a little mini campaign over there, and he's involved... And finally, there's a in April '65 they they finally capture the forts defending Mobile itself, and Granger personally accepts the surrender of Mobile in April 12th, I think, of '65. And then he goes to my favorite part of the book. Uh, and then he goes to Texas. <laughs> he does, yeah, because he's uh, because Sheridan by now is for the first time in command of Granger. He's never been in command of Granger before, but now he is. And they've sort of jiggered the seniority around so that if they're both major generals, but Granger becomes senior to, to uh, junior to Sheridan. And Sheridan is in New Orleans and sends Granger by boat off to Galveston in Texas. And Granger's role there is fairly significant because Texas, the rest of the Confederacy has all been conquered by Union armies, but Texas has not been. It's always resisted that Galveston was captured by, um, by the Union Army and Navy under Farragut, basically, at the end of 62, but then recaptured by Prince John Magruder on January the 1st of 63. And Farragut Although he's tempted to, he does not recapture Galveston because he's focused on the Mississippi River campaign. And so it remains in Confederate hands, as does the rest of Texas. And so Confederates, many Confederate slave owners are heading into Texas. And Texas remains, has this kind of bizarre attitude and, and I was really surprised by this in researching the book and reading the newspapers in Texas in 1865. They really didn't take it. They didn't think that the Confederate, the Union government was going to abolish slavery. They may have passed the 13th Amendment, but it hadn't kind of penetrated the consciousness of the 
Confederates in Texas. So they thought they didn't really mean it, or the you know they would all just they'd be forced labor if they wouldn't call it slavery. Right, but, right. But so Granger issues this very kind of tough order on June nineteenth, eighteen sixty-five spelling out that, no, 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 we really are abolishing slavery. And what that means is it's a state of absolute equality between black and white, which came as something of a surprise. And that wasn't his exact order either. I mean, didn't he get an order from Sheridan to say, yeah, slaves are free, but you you must remain on your property? Yes, he toughened up Sheridan's order. And I don't think there was, uh, uh, Granger uses the words, uh, equality of personal rights and rights of property. I don't think that was in Sheridan's uh, original no, he, order. He, he makes Sheridan's order, he takes it, and he decides basically on his own, but also just, I mean, operating. He felt it was necessary, I think, because of this Confederate attitude that he was meeting with. So he wants to spell it out both for the benefit of the Confederates and for the slaves, but he does nevertheless strongly advised the slaves not to you know congregate around union posts i mean so he he advises as opposed to sheridan's suggestion that he order them he had because he can't he figures he can't do that because it's would contradict him saying they have this freedom and these equal rights so he wants to make it clear that they have equal rights but he also wishes to as a matter of practicality, right? He doesn't want him gathering at Union right, Post. Right. Um, See, so you you brought up uh, Granger's connections to Andrew Johnson. Right. Uh, Andrew Johnson was the military governor of Tennessee during the war. Yep. And be- then became vice president in '64, and then president uh, in '65. Um, this was this was a very interesting relationship, and I and I think maybe even further explains sort of the the fact that Granger hasn't had a great uh, hasn't had a had good coverage in history in terms of uh, when people talk about him it's often negative uh, Andrew Johnson was not beloved uh, by most people particularly Grant and uh, and Sheridan uh, can you talk about his relationship with Johnson and what he might have how he might have been involved in the impeachment uh, sort of aiding uh, Johnson. Well, I, I did look into that, and it is an interesting, and I think under research, I, uh, I, I think somebody, the, the impeachment side from Andrew Johnson's side is to some extent, I think, an untold story, and I'd like to know more about it. But it's true that Granger and Hancock, who was another general, generally considered to be a Democrat, I guess eventually would run for president as a Democrat, mm-hmm were advising Johnson during the impeachment trial. And this is something that you could argue is not to Granger's credit and maybe is, is a legitimate reason for Grant looking upon Granger somewhat negatively. While on Juneteenth, Granger is this, in some ways I would say the document, Granger's order on Juneteenth is one of the most significant documents in Reconstruction. It's you know predates the amendments. It's a it's a very significant document and position. But <laughs> Granger is soon thereafter relieved by Grant because Grant you know basically gets around to noticing he's in Texas yeah. mm-hmm. and getting rid mm-hmm. of him and pressuring Sheridan to relieve him. So then Granger is kind of at loose ends and again. 
uses the Johnson connection. Um, he has a he's appointed colonel of a regiment in Memphis, and then he's sort of you could argue playing the politics of it and figure he tacks more towards Johnson's side and is and which is not necessarily uh, a friend of black rights or whatever or those. I don't think there's anything overt Granger did. In Memphis, there'd been a horrible race riot before Granger got there, which some people would say uh, Stoneman, the previous commander, had not particularly handled well. When Granger, to his credit, when Granger is in command in Memphis, there is no massacre of blacks. Uh, and so you could argue that he did a okay job as commander there. But he's also kind of, he's in communication with Johnson. And when Johnson is having difficulties. Oh, before that, by the way, when he's at loose ends, before he gets to Memphis, Johnson sends Granger down south to do a report on things down south. And actually, his report isn't that different from Grant's report, at a, which had happened shortly before then. But then, the where in the impeachment where it comes up is that <laughs> Johnson orders Granger to Washington, basically to kind of... Cons who to do who knows what and Stanton is this <laughs> Stanton is apparently ordering him back to Memphis and then <laughs> Johnson is countermanding Stanton's orders which happens more than once and Granger is apparently advising Johnson during the impeachment trial and we don't know a lot about that but there is one area where it's very likely that Granger's advice did play a role, and it's the uh, temporary appointment of John Schofield as a successor to Stanton as temporary as acting Secretary of War. And that appointment was kind of a politically advantageous to Johnson, because in part it satisfies the Radical, right. even Grant originally, although like Grant kind of goes back on it, because it it punctures the tension between, because one of the impeachment charges against Johnson was that he had illegally fired Stanton, and it was one of the kind of more dubious charges because, you know, if the president doesn't have the ability to hire and fire a secretary of war, then what does he have? Mm -hmm. And probably. The appointment of Schofield, Granger played a role in because if if Johnson had appointed someone like Granger himself, that would not have been acceptable to Grant and the Radicals. But Schofield was somebody who had in the war had he'd been he'd not been a radical that he'd been kind of close to the governor of uh, Missouri, Hamilton Gamble, who was a conservative, but he was also reasonably close to Grant. So he was somebody seen as acceptable to everybody. Compromise. Yeah, uh, a compromise yeah. candidate. Mm -hmm. So I think Granger probably played a role in that appointment. Tell me a little bit about uh, Granger, who this whole time is single. He's not married. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, he also has a lifelong uh, battle with health. Uh, he seemed to have bad lungs, uh, asthma, um, Some eye problems. Eye also, problems. Yeah. He does take a couple uh, long uh, leave leaves of absence uh, because of it, but he finally gets married. Can you tell 
Uh, yeah, he marries a, a woman from Kentucky whose name escapes me at the moment. It's terrible. Maria, I, I, uh, Maria, the last yeah, name I. I but the, the um, me as well. you, you you did warn me you were going to talk about Granger, but I, I forgot to 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 scan through the book. But yes, he marries a woman, and I've been to. Um, a dis- Granger's great grandson is still alive, or was <laughs> until recently, and I visited him in his home in Kentucky. Um, no, in Virginia. I'm sorry, but he's the the family um, kind of the subsequent family mostly went southern in its residents and sympathies. Granger may well have met his wife's family when he was serving in Kentucky. Um, Granger served in Kentucky at the end of 1862 when the state was being invaded by Bragg and Kirby Smith. And although Stranger was not involved in much combat at that time, it was he was um, played a kind of important role in, in the civil management of Kentucky, which was, I was quite surprised to find out that at the end of 1862, the Union High Command, including Horatio Wright, who was technically Granger's superior there, were quite alarmed at the potential of Kentucky seceding from the Union. There's there's always, uh, I thought, you know, that whole secession thing was like a year earlier, and you know, but nobody was still worried about it then, but they were. Um, And so... She was from Lexington, and Granger actually is buried in Lexington um, with her um, in a beautiful old cemetery there where uh, Clay Henry Clay is buried, where John Hunt Morgan is buried, uh, where the Confederates and Union uh, people are both buried there. But uh, So they were married. Um, they had two children, only one of whom survived, and it's his descendants who... Um, live and uh the one of the one of them who died died in saratoga springs actually um and was temporarily buried up there in uh what is it greenfield uh, greenview cemetery uh i forget the name of it uh but it's still there of a cemetery and then reinterred in lexington um but he yeah he his health was um mostly his health broke down when he was in the west he served um in uh, New Mexico and was uh, involved in negotiations with the Apache chief Cochise. It's kind of a part of Grant's peace policy. And, um, but his health breaks down, I think, in 1872 or three, and um, three, I guess. And then he's, uh, out, he has a long uh, couple of years of basically a sick leave until he goes back to New Mexico, but then dies in early 1876 on post in New Mexico. Right. So he, I really enjoyed, um, once you get to this part of the book, the communications that you're reading from Granger aren't just uh, military orders and, and uh, communicating with his generals. Now, now we have some letters to his wife. Yes, I got those from the great-grandson who were there in his personal possession. And uh, the, the wife um, does not follow him on that last tour. Um, so there's a lot of uh, letters. So, so you do get a flavor of what he was dealing with. And again, I, I guess Santa Fe, you know, is the Wild West. So it's, um, 
there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. A lot of kind of, you know, a lot of just imposing law and order, and and is a a difficult thing for some guy on a, you know, not commanding a lot of troops and having a very large area that he's in charge of. Um, it was uh, difficult just holding the line there. Uh, and uh, I don't have the quote here, but his letters. I mean, so you could sort of see again this uh, how people could see him in completely different lights. So, so he's saying the sweetest things to his wife. These is, some of them are very great love letters, but at the same time, he's sort of manic in terms of how he. Maybe you should take our son to Saratoga, the, the climate here. Then maybe you should do this. And it's and, and sort of this, maybe him getting a little, uh, not too involved, but just sort of uh, the, the way he thinks. Uh, well, just sort before of he had letters. left Saratoga, basically, Granger was, was living, he was spending time in Saratoga and also in western New York in Clifton Springs, where his own family was from. But his daughter had died. Um, in Saratoga, not long before he his sick leave ended and he went out west. So I guess he was concerned about the health of his son, who had some issues, mostly with his foot. Um, and so, you know, back, you know, people were worried about sure. the health, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm sure his wife was worried too. And the son did end up surviving, though. Right, and right. And had children. Had children yeah. and mm -hmm. grandchildren, yeah. So, so uh, we already talked about it, but to, to put sort of a fine point on it, um, one of the things that I've discovered uh, doing this podcast, and this will be the sixth episode, um, we've had two authors on who haven't generally been critic of Grant as a person and as a, a, a general. Well, but I'm not have, either critical. No. I mean, I'm, you know, it's but people differ. Right, <laughs> right. When you've written a book about Grant and you've written a book about Granger, <laughs> right, which right. is very interesting. Right. Uh, uh, but you know, we had Mike McCarthy on who wrote a book about Governor uh, K. Warren, and Grant relieved him after right, five forks. Right, right. And Warren sort of spent. Well, Sheridan did, right? It was. Sheridan, Sheridan, I think, in tandem with Grant, and they were both involved in his removal. Right, they didn't right. like him. They didn't like his personality. Yeah. And then they I also. Think they were, I think they were hard on him. Yeah. yeah. And, and they, 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 again, perceived that he didn't follow orders or was slow in following orders and thought he could think better than they could and you know, a guy who didn't hide that maybe he what he knew and wasn't afraid no. to tell people um and he, chris Mikowski, who uh wrote a book uh, well many books but a book on the battle of spotsylvania where yeah. uh, he's critical of grant sort of letting sheridan boss around mead and uh, right, right. uh and when mead's really his commanding officer and also allowing sheridan to go get as chris says gallivanting to yellow tavern of course, he kills Jeb Stewart, but he, there's no real strategic importance to it. He should have been back in Spotsylvania, according to Mikowski. So this was sort of more complex picture emerges of Grant. Uh, again, I, I don't think it's going after him in a, in, a, in a way that sort of damages his character, but it, it creates a complexness uh, that, you know, may, maybe Grant was attracted to certain personalities I think that's actually pretty Well, well clear. let's talk about that. Yeah. that. Okay, first of all, I don't want to diss Mikowski because he blurred my book. So, okay. I, you know, I know okay. Chris, so he's, he's, uh, he's a good guy and a good writer. But but um, I do think that Grant was hard on Governor Warren. But from Grant's perspective, and I think probably Sheridan's as well, you know, that they're, they're not going to worry about personalities or about 
you know, who's going to... The Grant's concern is to win the war, and he's determined, he determines that Sheridan is his guy, and he's going to give Sheridan his head, and what Sheridan says goes. And if you look at the results, especially in 1865, it's hard to argue with that. You know, you could, Governor Warren, I don't think, did a bad job at, in that campaign. Joshua Chamberlain, his subordinate, would back him up in it. Yeah. But I'm not going to argue with Grant and with Sheridan either. And, you know, whether Governor Warren's nose is out of joint is not the main issue. It really isn't. And, you know, back to Spotsylvania, Chris knows more about that than I do. But in Spotsylvania, I think you can argue with Grant at Cold Harbor, and I would. But so would Grant himself admit mm-hmm. his own error. Did. But Spotsylvania... You know, horrible casualties, again, on both sides, but casualties that the Union can afford, the Confederates can't afford. Killing Jeb Stewart is, is no bad thing. Sure. And I've, I'm not going to argue with Grant and Sheridan there. The, there's another guy, who is it, Averill, in the Shenandoah Valley, whom Sheridan relieves. And I think... You can argue against that also. And, you know, Guy probably never got over it, but leaves the Army uh, shortly after the war. But Grant's concern is to win the war as quickly and, you know, even though Grant takes terrible casualties, he would argue, I think, you know, his way of winning the war is cost... The you can't end worry somehow. about a general's yeah. feelings, mm-hmm. whether it's Warren right. or Meade or anyone. You've got to worry about results. So that brings us to your uh, latest book and <laughs> your work at the Grant Cottage. I, I, I noticed, uh, well, we're, we're right next to uh, the Grant Cottage set up here, so we should be a little more, or I should at least be quieter when talking <laughs> disparagingly about Grant. But um, no, I, I don't disparage Grant. I, I, I mean, I... I will argue with Grant when I, but I ultimately, I'm not going to argue with Grant. I mean, that when I think, I mean, for example, in the Granger book, I found what I believe to be an error in both Grant's and Sheridan's memoirs, and it relates, it's a small point, but I think when Grant complains that Granger was was late in getting off to Knoxville to relieve Burnside. I think he has the wrong day that Granger left. I think Mm -hmm. actually Granger left a day earlier than both Grant's and and Sheridan's memoirs say. And I presume that's because Sheridan picks up Grant's mistake, because Sheridan's memoirs come after Grant's. But whatever. Right. But, but, But Grant is still an obviously a greater historical figure than Granger, or uh, Granger doesn't have a civil war any weekend, of these right? guys, and he's also a greater man, and that so ultimately Grant's going to win those arguments, right? But the in the book that I have Grant kind of second guessing himself, as he does to a certain extent in the memoirs, and I have him kind of going even further in his last uh, thoughts or whatever, and but he. You know, Cold Harbor is a good case in point. Grant admits his error. Yep. He admits error at Vicksburg about pointless assaults. Go, And I think especially, you know, Grant is sorry about 
assaults that gain nothing and cost people's lives. But as Grant himself in his own, if he was arguing in his own defense, and as I guess I'll argue for him, it's easy to say that as, as a second guesser, but any assault, when it fails, is a waste, right? But when Petersburg falls, it falls because of a frontal assault by Horatio Wright's corps. Mm -hmm. They attack Petersburg frontally, and they carry it. And Richmond falls, and Lee surrenders. I mean, that all happens because at some point, a frontal assault's going to succeed, right? right? So it's you know, so I'm you can't be just a Monday morning quarterback sure. about stuff. You've sure. got to. But it, it, it creates a fun conversation uh, for sure. <laughs> right. um, so but but the story of the book is also it's not just about Grant. It's about it's called the Last Circle of Ulysses Grant, not Ulysses S. Grant, because that's really a phony name, as right. you probably know. Sure. So it includes key characters of people like Ely Parker, who was really a friend of Grant's and who a wartime comrade and a fascinating person in his own life. Ely Parker, towards the end of his life, towards the end of Grant's life, excuse me, tried to get in to uh, see Grant on 66th Street in Manhattan and couldn't get in, probably because Grant was sick that day or whatever. And so I kind of build on that, and I go from, you know, what might have happened after that. And then I also build on a key incident towards the end of Grant's life involving Adam Badeau, who, like Ely Parker, was a staff officer of Grant during and after the Civil War. So these three men knew each other very well. Badeau was helping Grant write the memoirs when there was a great dispute about whether he was helping or hindering him or whether he was claiming credit and Badeau leaves Grant's employ in in controversial circumstances shortly before Grant leaves New York and comes up here and in that period there's I imagine but I don't imagine anything that might not have happened dealings between Badeau and Grant and Parker involving how this situation is resolved in a way that people can deal with. And then I also have Badeau kind of, at the end of the book, Badeau kind of gets the last word, even though he's by no means the hero of the book, but he, I kind of wrap it up through him. Did you get interested in writing a book like that as a tour guide at Grant Cottage? Is it something... Have you liked Grant your your whole life? Uh, I grew up in England. Um, hmm. My parents were American, but I went to a good school in England which had a course in Civil War history, which greatly interested me. And the main textbook was a, a book by Bruce Canton. I, I, it was a one-volume history of the Civil War by Bruce Canton. I haven't seen recently now, but it occurs to me. I've read a lot of books by him since then. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it was a great book, wonderful book. When I, so I've always been interested in the Civil War and just reading about it my whole life. When I moved up to this area from New York City where I was living in 1982 to take a newspaper job in Glens Falls, I heard about this place called Grant Cottage. And I'd read another book by Bruce Catton called U.S. Grant and the American Military Tradition, which was a one-volume biography of Grant. And... It had talked about Grant's death, 
but it had never, I reread it later, and it had never mentioned Mount McGregor specifically or where Grant's death happened, but it talked in general terms about Grant's death and losing his money and whatnot. And so I heard about Grant Cottage when I moved up to Glens Falls and was like, well, wait a minute, didn't I, I know about Grant's death. I read this book, and how, what the, what's this Grant Cottage thing? So then I visited Grant Cottage in 1983 with my girlfriend, who then became my wife later, and uh, still is. And she noticed this lady who was in the garden of Grant Cottage, and I think may have talked to her while this gentleman gave me a tour. And those people were Tony and C.A. Gambino, C.A. Gambino is kind of this legendary tour guide who would die a year or two later. And that's when the state tried to shut Grant Cottage down, an issue about which I wrote as a journalist. And then, so I was always kind of interested in Grant Cottage and would visit it occasionally, took my kids up and rolling their eyes. And then the, I worked most of my life as a journalist for the Schenectady Gazette, 20-odd years, and then they laid me off at the end of 08. And then I became a tour guide, at first a volunteer, and then I became the site interpreter for a couple of seasons. And I had various other gigs. I was uh, mostly I worked in the drug alcohol treatment thing. I got an associate's degree in that. I became an online journalist for the Bolston Journal. But I basically took up writing books, and now I'm writing another Civil War book. And uh, what what what's that on? It's another biography. I found the fiction harder to get published, although I didn't have to pay to get it published. It's not self-published, right, uh, right. It's, but it's. Mm -hmm. um, I'm writing a book about uh, Colonel James Montgomery, who was a Kansas abolitionist who became a Civil War soldier and uh, worked with Harriet Tubman. Associated, he was he's the one of the bad guys in Glory. Uh, if you've seen that movie, because he burns. Uh, Oh, okay. The town in yeah, Georgia. Yeah, wow. And then okay. he fights at a lusty and at Westport, and uh, interesting guy. So I'm writing his biography. So a guy who, again, uh, oh, it's maybe some parallels to Granger in, in the sense <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, you know. Well, yeah. um, so, uh, Bob, I want to thank you so much for doing this. Um, <laughs> well, Nick, it's been a pleasure. You've got two two books, um, uh, Gord, uh, General Gordon Granger, the savior of Chickamauga uh, and uh, founder of the man behind man behind Juneteenth. I apologize. Yeah, and uh, the last circle of Ulysses Grant, not Ulysses <laughs> S. Grant. Uh, S. I think he picked up arbitrarily at West Point. It was written down. That's uh, oh, a whole story. It's yeah, a, yeah. And uh, of course, Grant Cottage is a beautiful place. Um, if you are in the Saratoga area, go up there. I mean, you can you Great can visit story, for free, yeah. right? And and uh, it's just a beautiful mountain. Um, Bob, thank you again. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on.